verse 11 of Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Christ we have life, and we have life abundantly. As we transition to thinking about uh, and acknowledging our sinfulness and our brokenness, I want to remind you that together this year we're going through the Bible. And we're thinking about the four-part story of the Bible together. Creation, that God made everything. He spoke everything into existence, and he called it good. Rebellion. We sin against God. We rebelled and brought death and destruction and chaos into his good creation. But redemption, Jesus. Jesus comes and he takes our sin on himself and exchanges our sin with his perfect righteousness that we have in him. Restoration. Everything is moving toward Jesus and he will make all things whole. And as we go through the Bible together and think about the story of Scripture, we are reminded of this, that the story of Scripture is our story. That we are the ones who have rebelled against God and Jesus has come to redeem us from our sin and to give us life. And in him, he will make us whole and all things will be made new. And so let's acknowledge and confess that this story is our story and confess our sin together. Uh, We will say this uh, out loud together and the words will be on the screen for you. But let's confess together, beloved. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You created all things out of nothing by the power of your word. Being made in your image was our identity. We were created to center life around you. Life was worship, work, covenant, and rest. Life was beautiful, good, true. But we exchanged life for the lie that our lives are about self. Because of sin, we define ourselves by what we produce. Efficiency and achievement are the way to success. Because of sin, we often only see you as useful. We think our relationship with you is the best way to get what we want. Our sin goes deep down in our hearts. However, your grace is changing us. Your grace leads us in a better way. Your grace leads us to see our sin and the hope we have in Jesus. Jesus, your cross crucified our sin. It purchased forgiveness. Your resurrection means new life. It means restoration. Father, for Jesus' sake, forgive us. Holy Spirit, convince us that life in Jesus is deeper than techniques for efficiency and achievement. Work in us wisdom to live thoughtfully in a broken world. All is gift. Amen. Now, let's take a few moments to quietly go before our God of grace, confess our sins more specifically, and see that we are met with the blood of Jesus and that in him we have life.
Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess all of these things in the hope of your mercy to us in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Beloved, hear God's assurance of his grace and his forgiveness to you in Christ. Because our Christ became wisdom for us. Nailing our sin to the cross. And it is by his blood that we are cleansed and made whole and have life in Jesus. We are a forgiven people. And as a forgiven people, let us declare what it is that we believe about what our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done and are doing and will do. And we're going to do that using the Apostles' Creed this morning, joining our voices with brothers and sisters who have gone long before us and ones who will come long after us as well too. And so I ask you, beloved of Christ, what is it that you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Beloved, our Christ is alive, and in him we have resurrection life. Good morning. It's good to be with you again. I really am enjoying going through the scriptures with you this year, and even though we're separated physically, I'm still connected with you spiritually, and we look forward to the day in which we can gather again I want to look this morning with you in the book of Job, and remember that as we're going through the Bible, and we look in particular at the book of Job this morning, that we're still in the wisdom part of the scriptures. Last week, we started looking at the wisdom portion of the scriptures. Uh, one of the definitions that we talked about last week that might be most pertinent for looking at the book of Job this morning was this, that wisdom is growing no matter the circumstances. We certainly see that in the book of Job. But Christianity and the Bible itself, God teaches through the scriptures that wisdom is actually a person. So even though little definitions can be really helpful, wisdom for us is actually a person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we think through wisdom together and as we think about understanding Christ better and receiving his wisdom and receiving Jesus over and over again, remember that wisdom is the way that we live out the three loves and it's the way that we live into the four-part story that John Paul mentioned earlier. So remember that about wisdom. Now let's take another step. As we look at the book of Job this morning, he is probably one of the most famous figures in all of history. No matter where you go on the planet, most people have heard of Job and what happened with him. So we're going to look at someone who is familiar 
to us. Perhaps we've heard about him before in one way or another. If you're the kind of person that likes to read back through the entire story and likes to navigate the books of the Bible, I'd love to give you a brief outline for the book of Job. Um, Job is basically consists of three conversations. There's a conversation between God and Satan in chapters 1 and 2. There are conversations between Job and his friends in chapters 3 through 37. And then in chapters 38 through 42, we find God's conversation with Job. Now, all that to say, we have one point to try to communicate and get into our hearts this morning. Uh, The point of this passage uh, is we're trying to connect wisdom to what happens here, which is suffering. So we're going to be thinking about suffering this morning. It's something that nobody asks for. It's something that's very difficult to go through. Whether you endure suffering personally or know of folks that you love that endure it, suffering is very, very difficult. So the point that we're trying to get across today and the point that we see in the book of Job is this. Lord, if there's any other way, let's do that. But if not, I trust you. That's the point of the book of Job. Now, I mention it, that point to you in that way because that is the kind of response to suffering that, that Jesus is working into our lives. Jesus is working into us the response to suffering that is, Lord, if there's another way, let's do that. But if not, I trust you. And the reason why Jesus is working that response to suffering into our lives is because that was his response to suffering, the suffering of the cross and the weight of what he would endure in suffering for our sins. We see that response from Jesus explicitly in Mark 14 as he goes into the garden. So that's the point this morning, that Jesus is working into us a response to suffering that is, Lord, if there's another way, let's do that. But if not, I trust you. So I'm going to read some verses to you from the book of Job that hopefully cobble together these ideas that we're going to be talking about today. So if you would listen to this, be refreshed with the word of God, even though what we're going to be reading is is somewhat challenging and difficult for us today. So listen to this. This is the word of God for us. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Next, I'm going to read you some verses from chapter 38 where God is speaking with Job and questioning Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? And then finally from Job 28. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that you are real, that you exist, that you act that you have great compassion on us. We thank you that you are glorious and infinite and eternal. And we ask that you might teach us today again and again from your word. Lead us to Christ. Show us our Savior and our need for him. Increase our wisdom and understanding. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. Holy Spirit, keep us in step with you. We ask that you would pour the love of the Father into us even as we think through and talk about suffering together. All for your glory we pray, amen. So this morning we're thinking about this point. Lord, if there's any other way, let's do that. If not, I trust you. We're gonna look this morning at this book of Job and I have four points. One, two, three, four. So if you can remember those numbers, then as we walk through this together, hopefully you'll understand how we're working that main point out. So one, there is one story. Job loses everything. Try to take that in. He loses everything. He lost all of his children. He lost his livelihood. He lost his wealth, and he was a very wealthy man. His wife was spared, but he lost everything. And the things that he lost, it's not as though they left Job's life because of some type of normal thing. It was weird in the way in which he lost everything. There was an ambush on some of his children. There was horrific storms. Job lost everything. And he found out about his losing everything in waves. So it wasn't, as though, it wasn't as though everything was wiped out at once and he had the chance to figure out and process that everything was gone. It was that he lost this and he heard about it. And he lost that and he heard about it. And he lost this and he heard about it. And he lost that and he heard about it. Wave after wave after wave it was communicated to him that he lost everything. And then, once all of that happened, I think there were four different accounts of those coming to Job saying, Job, this has happened. This has been lost. 
After all of that occurred, his wife came to him and said, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Now, I can't imagine what Job was going through or his wife. I can't imagine what it must have felt like to learn in that way of losing everything. And I certainly can't imagine someone coming to me, my closest companion, and saying, here's what you need to do, Job. Just go ahead and curse God and die. Job did have some friends that decided that they should go and visit Job. And his friends did a couple things well. They came and just sat with Job for days. And what they did when they finally decided to speak to Job is they wanted to talk with Job about what they thought was happening and why all of this happened to Job. Now, what's true is they have a horrible reason. Their reasons are horrible for why all this happened to Job. But they argue expertly. They, they argue, uh, and they're extremely articulate they are able to sound incredibly convincing to Job, even though their case and their explanations are absolutely horrible. Job desires to respond to his friends, and he does. And Job has a case for explaining what went down that is some right, mostly wrong, but he's not a good arguer. It's not very convincing at all. So here you are just left. If you're Job, you're just left with nothing. No encouragement. Loss. That's the story of Job. Now, our second point is that there are two must hears. You must hear me. Hear me on this. Number one, I need to be very direct with you this morning. I need to be very direct in communicating with you about suffering. And number two, the second must hear is this. There are many within our midst who are suffering. There are those in our church family who have recent loss and have fresh grief in their own lives. There are those in our church family who suffer with chronic pain there are those in our midst whose future, humanly speaking, may seem pretty dark. And there's probably a lot more that I'm not even aware of. There are people in our family, our church family, that are suffering. And to you, I need you to hear me. You should not listen to this message and think, I just need to toughen up. I just need to work harder to fix this or that. You should not hear this message and think, wow, Job had all this happen to him and look at my life. I should feel better because my life isn't as catastrophic as Job's. My suffering isn't as great as Job's. Those should not be your takeaways at all. And if I were to speak to you again and again about your suffering and what you're going through, I would be far more nuanced with you in talking about what you're going through than what I'm going to be this morning. So this morning, I'm going to be far more general than specific. And please keep in mind that these sufferings are real. And if you are suffering, know that you have the love of the Father on you 
and you have the care of this church for you and know that we are welcome. We would love to talk with you more about that. Love to get more nuanced into these things. But those are my two must-hears. So one story, two must-hears. Now there are three facts. Three undisputable facts, irrefutable facts, incontrovertible facts. Fact number one, Satan had the idea to bring all of this on Job. The fact that Job suffered was brought by Satan himself. Or if you want to know the real pronunciation, Satan, which means accuser. It was Satan's idea to bring all of this on Job. And I want to tell you, when you read back through the first chapter, and even if you go back and read the second chapter, you'll find out that this is quite extraordinary. That what we find in these verses is actually our great enemy coming into the light and expressing what he really thinks, what he really believes. He actually says what he is up to. He is being, shocker, honest here. And look at verse 9 of chapter 1. It tells you what is going on in the mind of Satan, what's going on in his heart, and what he really thinks about the world. He says to God, do you think Job serves you for no reason? Satan's whole way of looking at the world is that people are in relationship with people to use them. In other words, Satan doesn't really believe in love. He doesn't believe in unconditional love. He doesn't believe in genuine love. What he thinks is Job has been serving God for a reason. Job serves God not for God, but Job serves God for what he will get from God. That's why Satan goes on to say, don't you realize, God, that you've put a hedge around Job and you've given him all these things and you've blessed him in all these ways? Don't you realize, God, if you take away all the things that you've given him, Job will want nothing to do with you? Satan does not believe in genuine love. He believes that we have relationships with each other just for the purpose of using one another. It's unbelievable that we have this exposure to us through the book of Job about our great enemy. The second fact is this. God is in absolute control. God is in absolute control here. Now, go back and think for a little bit with me about the first couple chapters of the Bible. To start off this whole series, John Paul preached about Genesis 1 and 2. And remember, God made the world good. He made the world good. He made it to display his glory. He made us in his image to reflect his glory everywhere. God made things good. But when we rebelled against God, when we sinned against God, when we turned our back on God and decided that we wanted to do our own thing, we brought disease and suffering and death and decay into 
the world in which we live and into our lives. So now the world that we live in every day is good, but it is not perfect. As a matter of fact, it is under a curse. The world itself is groaning under the weight of the consequences of sin, longing for the return of Christ. So the world is good, but it's not perfect. The world is full of order. There are laws that govern our universe that are absolutely undeniable. When you look at creation itself and explore the world around us, it is irreducibly complex. And yet, even though there is order, there is also chaos in the world in which we live. And to take that a step further, the world is beautiful. It is fun to explore all kinds of places in the world, even our state. We have beautiful places to go. There are beautiful sunrises and sunsets everywhere. Beauty is all around us. But at the same time, the world we live in is dangerous. And what that means is that the world in which we live and life in it is not completely knowable, nor is it tameable. And God is in complete control over all of that. So, when Satan comes to God, what God says to Satan is that he grants him permission and he limits what Satan can do. So, God's in control. Satan is not allowed to take his life. There are limits put on it. And Satan knows he has to get permission. Third fact. Job doesn't know why his life takes such a turn. He doesn't know why. And even by the end of the story, he just still doesn't know why. He never knows why his life took such a turn. And as I'm talking with you this morning, I don't know either. I don't have all the answers for why suffering occurs I don't have the answers. Those are three facts about this story. Four takeaways. Four takeaways. Number one, let's answer and think about together the burning question that we all have. The question that we've heard over and over from friends or family. The questions that perhaps we've even thought about, whether we verbalized it ourselves or kept it inside. There's one burning question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? I want you to know that there's really only one time that that has ever happened. It happened to Jesus. He is the only one that is truly good. And bad things happened to him. Beloved, when he died on the cross for you and for me, it was to take on and absorb the wrath of God. But I want you to know that when Jesus, when Jesus endured the cross for you and me, he proved 
that the way Satan looks at the world and the way he thinks that we relate to one another is absolutely wrong. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not do it because he thought he would get something out of you and me. Remember, Satan's mentality is that people relate to one another just because they can use one another. Jesus, through the cross, proves that that is absolutely wrong. He establishes that there is love in the world and that it's unconditional and that it is genuine love. When Jesus died on the cross for you and me, he didn't die because he thought he would get something out of us. He didn't die on the cross for you and me because he saw down the road, down through the corridors of time that that we would make some decision for him or that we would do something great for him. He died on the cross because he loved us. That's it. There has never been a day in which Jesus has looked at my life and thought, you know, Dave has some administrative skills and he has some leadership skills and he's taught me a thing or two. There's never been a day in which he has watched me do marriage counseling or do other types of counseling and thought, you know what? What he did, what Dave did there, I should implement that into my life. There's never been a day when I have taught Jesus anything. There's never been a day when Jesus has learned something from me. There's never been a day in which Jesus thought, you know, I sure am glad that Dave entered the ministry and, and pastors. Because if he hadn't done that, this whole thing that I got going would have gone off the rails. There is, it has never entered into Jesus' mind that by me moving to Greenville, North Carolina, his plan, Jesus' plan for the world had been restored. Jesus didn't die for me or for you because he thought he would get something out of us. His love is true and pure and unconditional. And friends, that means that we need to stop living as if God loves us because he saw we would do something or be something. We need to continue to acknowledge that how much, how much, of, our, how much of our lives is lived in which we're trying to do something for God, trying to get his attention, expecting that if I do this, then he will love me more or I'll stay in his good graces. You see, if Jesus died to prove that love is real, it means that we are freed up. It means that we don't have to try to accomplish these things for God because if we don't, then it won't happen. It means that we can abandon our plans for the world and how we feel like we're gonna make it a better place and we can get caught up into his mission And what he is already doing, it means that we can continue to repent and acknowledge how much we think God loves us because we've done something. It means that we are free to live our lives 
receiving his love, receiving what he says about us, living by his mission, loving his kingdom, keeping in step with the Spirit, following his plan for the world. Takeaway number two, God uses suffering to make his people great. God uses suffering to make his people great. You see, suffering happens when something temporary in our lives is taken away. You see, oftentimes our hearts are attached to something that is temporary, like athleticism, intelligence, productivity, name, being approved by some. Those things are all temporary. And oftentimes our heart is attached to what is temporary. And suffering is when those temporary things are taken away from us. Because God knows that if we continue to build our life on things that are temporary, we will be even more empty. The only way to live a solid life is when our lives are centered on God. And when our lives are centered on God, we can lose temporary things and we can be angry. We can grieve. We can be frustrated. But you see, because our lives are centered on God, all those temporary things are not the ultimate thing. God is. And if God is our center, then we know that those temporary things and our suffering will ultimately be undone. We know that sin and death and disease will ultimately be eradicated. And if God is the center of our lives, it means that we can enjoy temporary things. It means that we can enjoy money. It means that we might be good at making money. It means that we might be very athletic. It means that we might be very intelligent. It means that we might be very productive. But if those things are taken away, our lives aren't over. God remains. So we can look at those temporary things and we can acknowledge they're temporary and we can use all of them for God. Because he is the main thing that our lives are anchored on and in. So we can use the money that he gives for him. We can use our athleticism for him. We can use our accomplishments and production for him. But they're not ultimate. God makes his people great through suffering. And we know that one day all things will be restored for sake of time, I'll go to the fourth takeaway. You know, the last word on the book of Job is found in the book of James in the New Testament. James chapter 5 says these words. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of God to be compassionate and merciful. Now, when you think about that verse, when I was thinking about that verse, 
it made me think about James. And maybe he wrote that verse because he was meditating or thinking about the story of Job. Or maybe he wrote that verse because he had had a conversation with his own brother, Jesus, about Job and his life. And you notice what James says. He says, you have heard about Job and you have seen the purposes of God. James is saying throughout the entire story of Job, through the whole story, he remained, Job remained steadfast. That doesn't mean perfect. Steadfast means that Job remained genuine. Job remained constant in his talking with his father. Job was legit in the way that he expressed himself and in which he was frustrated with God, in which he didn't understand what was going on. Job remained steadfast even though he lost everything. Was he angry again? Yes. Was he frustrated with God? Yes. Did he understand everything? No. But he was steadfast. But God's purpose, if you read through the whole book and think through the totality of suffering, when you read through all of that, you can see that God was compassionate. God was merciful. And friends, that means that what Jesus is working into us, what Jesus is working into us is this. Lord, if there's another way, let's do that. But if not, I trust you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us and your compassion. Thank you for your mercy. There is so much, Lord, that we do not know. And there's so much that we will not know and can't know. But convince us more and more of your love for us. And help us to understand the goodness, your goodness to us in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Friends, as you go about your week, continuing to figure out your work, continuing to endure the good times with your family and the challenging times with your family, know that God is with you, that he has promised to bless you. And if you would, Try to live as if you actually believe that his blessing for you is true. The Lord your God is going to bless you and he is also going to keep you. This week his smile is upon you and he's going to be gracious to you. And in the age to come forever and ever. And even now, his presence is with you. Even in and through suffering. And one day, he will bring peace. He will bring shalom. And all will be well. Because our Christ is alive. Amen. Go in peace.